It is great to be with you this morning. The title of the message is When Things Don't Go the Way You Thought or Wanted. And so, uh, just think about that for a second. I think we all can relate to that. When things don't go the way you thought or wanted. And uh, today's passage, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 33. So uh, if you uh, go ahead and get your Bibles ready, or your phones, or your iPads, or wherever you are reading God's Word from, please have that ready for yourself. We're also going to be looking at some of the other Gospels as well, as this is the only uh, miracle recorded in all four Gospels. So it goes to show that when Jesus fed the 5,000, there's some significance there. But we're not only going to be looking at that story, but we're also going to be looking at the story right after that where Jesus walked on water. So as I was thinking about uh, when things don't go the way that I thought or I wanted, you know what, I went back to uh, a time when I was in high school and I was taking my driver's test. I took it a little later than the rest of my friends. I didn't take it as soon as I turned 16. And uh, I thought, okay, I've got this. I'm good to go on this. I probably took it like six months later. And I remember being prepared, or I thought I was prepared, and uh, went, took it, went down to the DMV in Torrance, and I'm almost finished, and all of a sudden, the instructor says, um, take us back right now. And I could tell by the tone of his voice, something wasn't good. And I just was like, uh, okay. He goes, you know, you almost killed us just now. <laughs> I'm thinking, what, what in the world are you talking about? And he drove me through a four-way no-stop. And I slowed down, but I didn't know that I should have stopped at that point. I still, still there's a part of me that feels like he was a little overdoing it there. But um, he failed me instantly. And that is uh, not what I thought was going to happen with me taking this driver's test. It's definitely not what I wanted to uh, come back, drive into the parking lot, look in my dad's face, and uh, tell him I, I didn't pass. And I know he then was like, yeah, that's a good one. You know, come on. And I was like... He could tell my face. I mean, I must have been white as a ghost. And I was just like, I failed. And uh, that was hard. Um, I, I did not expect it. I didn't want it. But it happened. And uh, you know what? Today, we're going to be looking at um, some people and some situations that... Uh, they wanted one thing, but they ended up getting something else. And so, as we look at Matthew chapter 14, um, right before our passage starts with uh, verse 13, I have to go back and, and look at verses 9 through 12, because this was, this was the setting 
right before it introduces our time. It says, and, and the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. This is where the, a recap of what had happened to John the Baptist and how John the Baptist had been beheaded because uh, King Herod told, you know, his wife's daughter, hey, you dance so wonderfully, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And she asked her mother what, and her mother said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And uh, King Herod never, ever in his wildest dreams thought that that would be asked of, but it was, and in order for him not to lose faith, face, he uh, had to follow through with his oath. And so that's what's going on. And it says in verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. That's where Jesus' mind is at right at this point. It says in verse 13, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. So, Jesus wanted some solitude. He wanted some solitude, we see in verse 13, possibly to grieve, or maybe just to rest, or to pray. We aren't exactly sure, but, but Matthew writes that, that Jesus withdrew to a desolate place by himself. If you... Uh, piece the other gospel stories together, um, you see that uh, uh, the apostles recapped with Jesus all that they had done and uh, on their missionary trip that Jesus sent them on. And uh, Mark chapter 6 verse 31 says that Jesus wanted them to rest a while. And I can only imagine what it was like for them all to be together telling their stories to Jesus. Remember, in Matthew chapter 10, he sent them all out. He gave them instructions on, on what to do, what to take, what not to take, and, and to preach the gospel, to heal. And they did that. And, and now we're coming to a point where they've just come back, and they're just telling Jesus all their stories. I don't know. I mean, uh, they must have been clamoring. Oh, well, well, let me tell. Let me tell Jesus. Jesus, this was awesome. Oh, we went into this city, and boom. And maybe one of the other groups said, no, no, that, that's awesome. But Jesus, Jesus, I just got to tell you, oh, my goodness, this was incredible. And boom. And they start to tell their stories. I can just picture Jesus kind of taking it all in. There's this warmth, this joy inside of him when he gets to see his disciples putting into practice what he had encouraged them and instructed them to do. Now, they still weren't perfect. They still had doubts, and we're going to see that. They still had struggles. They still couldn't comprehend everything. Their mind was still somewhat torn as far as uh, what they thought an earthly king the Messiah was going to be, as opposed to who Jesus was trying to show them who he really was, the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world, not some political leader. 
But after hearing their stories, Jesus knew that they needed rest. As much as they were dealing with this, this mountain high, they were also, I'm sure, fatigued emotionally, physically, and possibly even spiritually. So they got on a boat and went to a desolate place. And this desolate place was, was outside a town called Bethsaida, according to uh, what Luke wrote in chapter 6, verse 10. But even before they landed, each gospel account records that, that the crowds were already there waiting for them. Jesus wanted some solitude, but before he even gets out of the boat, the crowds had already come. The crowds were walking on the shore, and because of his popularity, and because of, of what he has already done with healings, and because this was a time of Passover, so there was even more people coming into the territory and in the area, somehow they had heard about um, Jesus being in, in the area. You know, I can't help but think that, uh, you know, when I was in high school, uh, you know, you'd hear about high school parties. Back in the days when I did not know the Lord. And you'd kind of hear about a high school party, and, you know, word would get around, and it'd just be like, oh, yeah, hey, there's a party. It's going to be at so-and-so's house. It's just a small gathering. And you're like, oh, cool, you know. And by the time you get there, uh, there were hundreds of people at these different parties at different times in my high school life. And it was just like, whoa, you know, uh, this was not some small gathering. Word had spread and everybody, oh, there's going to be a party over there? Oh, okay, boom. Oh, there's going to be a party over there? Oh, okay, wow. I kind of get the idea that this was what was happening. Word was spreading. Maybe somebody standing close when they overheard Jesus say, hey, you know what, let's get in our boat. We're going to go across over here to Bethsaida, and we're going to go to this desolate place outside of that city. And all of a sudden, person's listening, and they go, oh, my goodness. Uh, this is just, like, too great to, to hold to myself. So, so they're going to go, and they tell others. And then they tell others, what, Jesus is going where? He's going on the boat. Well, you know what? That's, that's like a four-mile boat ride if you went by boat across the lake. But it was like a, about an eight-mile walk on the shore. And so guess what? The crowds wanted what Jesus was giving. He was a celebrity. He performed healings and exorcisms. He was preaching and teaching. And the crowds wanted what he was giving as long as it met their expectations, not necessarily his. Verse 14, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. Mark says it was because they were like sheep without a shepherd in Mark chapter 6, verse 34. The compassion, that word compassion, it, it meant to have one's inner being stirred. It was more than just having sympathy. It was so much stronger than the word sympathy. But compassion, when Jesus saw the crowds, he was stirred. 
even though he was tired, even though he knew his men were tired and fatigued. Jesus thought that he and the boys were going to get to rest. But you know what? Things didn't turn out that way. Number two, you know what? The apostles wanted freedom of responsibilities. They wanted freedom of responsibilities. Verse 15 says, Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away. They, they, they like, man, really? We came over here. We can't enjoy this, this, this kind of great time with Jesus because all these people are here. They didn't even get out of the boats, and, and there, a lot of them are waiting for them. Not all of the crowd. But there was a number of them who were able to go and get there. I just came back from Hume Lake a couple of weeks ago. And you know what? Um, when you go out on that little lake, uh, it's nowhere near as big as the Sea of Galilee. But depending on which way the wind's going, if you go out in a rowboat, man, it's pretty tough to, to make any progress. You can walk around that lake pretty good, and it's pretty easy. And you're walking around that lake close to three miles. Whereas if you just went straight out, and then came straight back. It's a lot shorter distance, but you know what? Depending on how the wind is and everything, hey, you can get there just as fast walking. And so that's what we're led to believe. This is what had happened. And, and the apostles are kind of, I got to believe they're kind of frustrated. I don't know. I, I, maybe it's just me. I would be. But because Jesus had compassion on them, in verse 14, it says he healed their sick. And now we're getting to the point, it's evening. And uh, the disciples, they come to Jesus, and, you know, they just go, uh, this is a desolate place, meaning, you know, there, there's no stores. There's no shops. There's no place where we can get food, or there's no place where we can get lodging. I mean, it's desolate. It's out on, on the side of a, of a hillside. And, and they just say, send the crowds away. Jesus, can, can we just have a break? Let them go find their, their own lodging. Let them go find their own food. Luke was the one who says to find lodging and to get provisions. Matthew just talks about uh, to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. The apostles could have been frustrated that their supposed restful hang time with Jesus just got hijacked by a large crowd and that he spent the day healing the sick and teaching them many things. That's what Mark adds to this story, verse 34 of chapter 6. But guess what? They wanted freedom from their responsibilities, but they got added responsibilities. Not only did they, were they not free from what they had to do, but Jesus gave them more. In verse 16, Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. <laughs> what? Really? I mean, how? What are we supposed to give them to eat? 
And this is where we get to look at, at some of the other gospel uh, accounts of this. Because John records that Jesus asked Philip, hey, where can we buy bread so they can eat? Now, the reason why he asked Philip is because Bethsaida, it was his hometown. He was a hometown boy. If anyone knew where to buy bread, it was going to be Philip. Philip was first running the numbers in his head, though. He wasn't thinking about, wait, where, where, where can I go? He's thinking about, wait, how much is this going to cost? And he's running off his little calculator in his brain, and he's trying to figure it all out, and he's just kind of taking a glance at all the people. And again, we don't know how many people are there yet. It, it hasn't come up in the story. But there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of people. And his brain is going, and he's kind of thinking, oh, my goodness, okay. He comes up with a figure, you know, it's going to take about eight months' wages for us to buy enough food just so that everybody could just have a little taste. It wasn't going to satisfy them. It was just going to give them a little taste. Man. The, the number he came up with, it was still too high in price, and it was too low in quantity. Because John says, it just, Philip says, just to give them a little. It wasn't going to feed them. Philip basically said, you know what, we don't have uh, the money or the provisions. But not only was Philip challenged here, but also John chapter 6, verses 8 through 9, says that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, is, is mentioned. And while Jesus is asking Philip about this, Andrew's probably thinking, okay, wait, whoa, whoa, okay, what can we do? What, what resources do we have? He was searching for a solution because Jesus said, you give them something to eat. It wasn't to any one disciple. It was to all of them. And, and we know that this was a test. We know that Jesus wanted to see what they were going to try to do. But all Andrew could come up with, you know what, he was looking for groceries. That's his solution. Philip's looking for money, and Andrew's thinking groceries. And, and so what does he do? He comes up and he finds some, some young boy. He's like, hey, kid, come here. What's in the basket? Who knows it, it, why this little guy had these five barley loaves of bread and two fish? Could it have been his dinner? Could it have been what he was supposed to be taking home to his family? We don't know. But all we do know is Andrew's like, uh, yeah, um, we got five barley loaves and two fish. Really? That, that, that was only enough for the boy, let alone all the rest of the people. Um, Philip sees the impossible circumstances and looks at the budget. Andrew sees the same circumstances, and he's checking the pantry. Tough stuff. They, uh, they wanted freedom of responsibilities, and yet, 
Jesus gave them more. Now, the crowds um, wanted to force Jesus to be their king. That's number three, or C in the outline, because uh, they wanted an earthly king. In John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, that's where we learn that. And they had just experienced the sign of magnitudinal proportions. I don't even know if that's a real word or not. But if it isn't, I made it up. I think it is. But magnitudinal proportions. Jesus miraculously produced enough food to feed between 10 to 15,000 people. How do we know that? Because the, the gospel writers record that there was 5,000 men. That Greek word is specifically for men. And so we know that women were there. We know that children were there. We don't know how many. Guesstimates are it was as low as 10,000. I heard some guesstimates saying it could have been as high as 20,000. Uh, even if you go low, I mean, you're talking, I, I think about the Anaheim Pond. It holds uh, roughly 18,000 people. So it wouldn't be a full place, but we're talking thousands of people. And, and they wanted to force Jesus to be their king. But Jesus knew it wasn't the right time or the right way. Nope. In John 6, 15, it says, They were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Folks, a king is one who rules, not one who is ruled by others. The people were determined to use Jesus. They had no desire to obey him. And yet, interesting enough, even though their, their motives were so wrong, this is it marked the high point of Jesus' popularity. I mean, he was so popular. The people were like so amazed. They were so astonished. They, they were in awe, and they couldn't believe all the things that Jesus was doing. But they still wanted to make him their king so that he could change the political situation of their day. They didn't even have a concept that this man who provides bread for this multitude, just a little later on in John chapter 6, says, I am the bread of life. Come to me. I will sustain you. Powerful. Incredible. Number four. The disciples, now we're going to shift and we're going to go from the feeding of the 5,000 and we're going to go to walking on the water. And, and um, as we look at that, you know, the, these first nine verses of Jesus feeding the 5,000, now there's 12 verses that talk about uh, Jesus walking on water. And in Matthew, it's the only gospel account in which it, it talks about Peter. And we'll get to him in a minute. But the disciples wanted a quiet boat ride back home. In, in verse 22, it says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. 
the the reason for this, man, it had been a very busy and a long day, and a lot had happened. And it was a challenging day, ministering to so many people. They, the, the disciples waited on and bussed thousands of people. I mean, I've been a waiter before. And, you know, sometimes you, in your sections you'd have six, maybe eight tables. And um, when it's really happening and it's flowing, you know, you're, you're, you're not stopping. Right? You're constantly trying to make sure you're meeting everybody's needs. And that's just with your, within your own section. These 12 guys, I mean, it, it would be safe to say possibly had 1,000 people each that they were taking care of. Men were sitting over in this section, and women and children were sitting over in this section. They were hustling. And they're still, I mean, man, I still don't know what's going through their mind. Because... Because earlier, Jesus, he took the, the bread and the fish. He gave thanks. He broke it. And then he gave it to the disciples. And I, I don't know if, if he just put it in the baskets and they took a basket and it's like, whoa, it's loaded. I don't know if, if Jesus was just there the whole time and, and continually breaking and giving and breaking and giving, and they're like, well, where's this coming from? I, I don't know. My mind, I, it's just so hard to comprehend sometimes. So imagine them, and they're living it out. They've got to be exhausted. And they listen to Jesus' instruction, and so they got into the boat with experienced boatmen. A lot of them were fishermen, not all of them, not all the 12. And they just wanted to go back home. And, and Jesus said, hey, yeah, you're going to do this and, it, without me. Because i got to dismiss the crowds. And the reason why it was so important is because John tells us, hey, they wanted to force him to be king. And Jesus like, this is the wrong time, wrong way. And if these apostles are here, they might buy into this. Because these guys are still struggling trying to grasp what I'm trying to teach them. And so Jesus knew, i got to get these guys out of here. Or else they might fall into the, hey, yeah, yeah, let's make Jesus king. Because, yeah, that's going to make me look really good. And I'm going to have more power and more popularity. And people are going to respect me more because I'm one of Jesus' guys. That's all conjecture. But there's a reason why Jesus immediately made them leave so that he could dismiss them. And then we know that after he dismissed the crowds in verse 23, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So here's the thing. They, they, uh, they, they wanted a, a, a quiet boat ride home. But you know what? They, they got caught in a storm. In Matthew 24, it says, The boat was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Mark chapter 6, verse 48 says, And he, Jesus, saw they were making headway painfully. 
So he's up on the mountainside, he's praying, and then he's still able to look on down, and he sees the storm. Guess what? It was no surprise to Jesus. You could even say that Jesus purposefully sent them out into the storm. You wouldn't be incorrect if you, if you feel that way. For the wind was against them. John chapter 6, verse 18 says, The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, folks, the Sea of Galilee is about 650 feet below sea level. And it's about 150 feet deep, and it's surrounded by hills. And these physical features, oh, man, they make it subject to sudden windstorms that would, that would cause extremely high waves. These storms were expected on this lake, but they were nonetheless frightening. Recall back in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus is in the boat with them in verses 23 through 27. And, and he's sleeping. And there's a furious storm coming on. And to the point where the waves, it says, swept over the boat. And while Jesus is still sleeping, even though I don't know how he could be doing that while all this is going on, it says the disciples were so scared that they woke him up and cried out, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And Jesus said, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Remember that. Remember that. And we come to finally the fifth uh, person uh, who, you know what, they didn't really have things go the way they thought or wanted to. And that was when uh, Peter walked on water. Peter walking on water. The setting, if we read verses 25 through 27, it says, And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So Jesus was by himself on the hillside praying, and, and he could see that the 12 men in the boat were struggling. And it was somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., and he walked on water to come to them. And you'd think this was a good thing, right? Jesus coming on over to help them. But Matthew and Mark said that they were terrified. Why? Because they thought he was a ghost or a water phantom. Phantasma, that's the Greek word where we get our English word phantom. Matthew goes on to write that they cried out in fear in verse 26. And how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 27. Take heart or take courage. Why? Because it is I. It's me, Jesus. So don't be afraid. Why? Because it is I. I'm here. I'm with you. I'm present. And it's at this point where Peter jumps in, both literally and figuratively. In verse 28, we see that, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Matthew's the only 
gospel writer who, who recorded this. Some say that because Mark um, took a lot of what he learned from Peter himself, that Peter would not dare to include this in that gospel account. Not sure, but look at, again, verse 28. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Peter's thinking maybe something like this. Gosh, that voice, it sounds like Jesus. But remember, and they're in the midst of a storm. They're frightened. They're terrified, the scripture says. It, it, it sounds like something Jesus would say. Take courage. Yeah, he said that before. It, it's, it's I. Don't be afraid. Hmm. I can't tell for sure, but I, I think it looks like Jesus. Whatever it was, Peter throws out his fleece. So he says, if it's you, don't ask me to come. Command me to come to you out on the water. And um, you got to wonder, what were the rest of the disciples thinking? I mean, maybe what was going on in their mind? Again, just conjecture, but my mind gets so full of questions that I know don't have answers, but I still have to ask them anyway. Uh, maybe they were thinking, you know, one thing, are you nuts? <laughs> Asking this, this, we don't even know for sure if it's Jesus, but this ghost telling him to command you to come to him? Peter, you're a fool. Uh, maybe they're thinking, go ahead, Peter. Just go ahead. You're going to die. We're going to die anyway, so hey, go ahead. M maybe they're thinking, I'm not getting out of this boat no matter what. Have fun, Pete, but I'm staying here. Maybe they're, they're huddled together and kind of like, wait, wait, wait. did he really just say that? Maybe some of them were going, hey, there he goes again. Act first, think later. Right? I mean, because that's kind of Peter's history. But here, here's what we do know. Jesus said, come. And guess what? Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water, and he came to Jesus. Peter wasn't messing around. Jesus, command me to come, and I'll do it. Jesus says, come. And all we know is that Peter got out of the boat. We don't know if he jumped in. We don't know if he kind of trepidation, kind of stepped on over and just tested the waters. We don't know how he did it, but we know he got out of the boat. The only one. He walked on water. The only other person recorded in history to have ever walked on water outside of Jesus. And he started toward him. Peter went from the safety of the boat to the unsuredness of the rough sea. He went from the no, hey, this boat's floating. It might be struggling, but it's floating, to the unknown. 
I've never seen this before, let alone I've never done this before. And he's an experienced fisherman. He went from being separated from Jesus to being united with Jesus. But you know what? He took his eyes off of Jesus. Verse 30 tells us that Peter noticed the wind and realized he was still in a storm. And because of that, his fear returned. And because he let his fears take over, he began to sink. Peter had been zoned in on Jesus. Have you ever experienced that before? I mean, I have, it, it's, it's incredible when you are just so tuned in to what you know God desires for you. Because everything that you think, everything that you do is all about what does Jesus want. But then we get distracted. We take our eyes off of him. Just like Peter. And uh, place them squarely on his own circumstances. And we're no different. You know, right now, being in the midst of a pandemic, many of you are in the midst of your own storms. In a relational storm. Some of you are struggling with, how do you deal with being secluded from family and friends? Others of you, how, how do you deal with working from home while trying to educate or just care for your children? It's a struggle. It's, it's a it's a relational storm. You're not used to this. This is not the norm. Others are dealing with physical storms. You're having to be left alone at a hospital for a variety of reasons. Some small sicknesses, others major sicknesses. And your loved ones can't be there to, to encourage you or to comfort you. No one is allowed to be there with you. Some of you are waiting on a diagnosis. Is it cancer or not? You're waiting for results for, from MRIs that are going to let you know, is this going to change the quality of life that I'm living, am I going to still be able to live depending on what the results are? These are real physical storms. Others of you are dealing with career storms. You've been furloughed or you've been let go from your jobs. You're struggling finding a job. If you own a business, it, it, it could fail. These are big storms. There's other people depending on you. Financial storms. Not only could you lose your business, but you could lose your house, your apartment. You could lose your transportation because you can't make payments anymore. So what do we do? What do we do when we're in the midst of a storm? Well, I, I think we do what... Peter did. 
in verse 30, we read this. He cried out, Lord, save me. He was afraid because he let the circumstances overcome him. He let the circumstances take his focus off of Jesus, his provider, his protector, his savior. And he allowed the circumstances to just cloud his thinking. But not to the point, not to the point that he didn't know he could still come to Jesus and cry out to him, save me. Some people think that Peter failed because he started to sink. I think that he was incredibly successful. He accomplished something nobody else has. And throughout his life, he had many failures and many setbacks, even to the point where he totally denied Jesus. But Jesus restored him. Jesus encouraged him. Jesus empowered him. And Peter's one of the most dynamic men of faith this world has ever known. He knew that Jesus was with him. And he knew that Jesus could save him. In times of fear and uncertainty, isn't it calming to know that Jesus is always with us? I mean, it should be when we don't forget about it. Matthew chapter 28, the very last verse, verse 20, when Jesus says, and surely I am with you always. Not most of the time, not sometimes, not when I'm not busy with others. I am with you always. We've got to hold on to that. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, it's actually quoting Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, when, when God says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I, I love this. Someone has written uh, this little quote. To recognize Christ's presence is the antidote for fear. I don't have that on a slide. But I'll say it again. To recognize Christ's presence is the antidote for fear. As we look for an antidote for COVID-19, I think these words are needed now more than ever. Recognize Christ's presence because that's the antidote to the fear that is going on around us. Christ, his presence, his character, that is what we need to continually cry out to. Recognize his presence no matter what the storm is. Now, when things don't go the way you thought or wanted, what can you do? Hey, here's just three quick things. Don't measure, try to measure our resources, but determine God's will and trust him. Don't try to figure it all out on your own. How about go right to God in his word and in prayer and going to godly brothers and sisters and people who are tuning into God and looking at him and, and seek what's his will? 
And then trust him, even if you don't like it. We're not the ones who do the miracles. He is. But he uses us to bring them about. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes, but he used the apostles to hand those out. Don't forget that. Number two, obey God even when it doesn't seem to make sense. I'm not trying to make these trivial or trite. I'm, I'm trying to just to remind us. You know, Jesus told the apostles, you feed them. <laughs> what? what? Uh, and, and they didn't. But Jesus was forcing them to think about, okay, what does God want to do? Peter, come on out here with me. The water's fine. And you just kind of go, What? That doesn't make sense. The other 11 were like, yeah, yeah, right. But, but even though it didn't make sense, Peter obeyed. And then number three, keep your eyes and attention on Jesus. Keep your eyes and attention on Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus even though you might be looking for a mate. Keep looking at Jesus even though you're, you might be looking for a job. Keep looking to Jesus when you're trying to figure out, well, what am I doing with school if you're in college? Keep looking to Jesus not your own solutions. Keep your eyes and attention on Christ. And when we do, we can do incredible things. Because it's not in our power. It's all in him. Just like Peter did. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, I thank you that even when we mess up, You're right there. Even when we get distracted, you're patient. Even when, for some who just blow you off and don't even want to acknowledge you, don't want anything to do with you, Lord, you still love and desire to have a relationship with them. Father, when things don't go the way we think or the way we want, thank you that we can look to you and we can trust you. We can obey you and we can keep our focus, our priorities on what you desire. Because, Lord, when we do that, we are successful in your eyes. And you're able to use us to accomplish anything you desire. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.
Amen.